the NOAA thing is as close to a classic building inspection as you can get in our world right now. They want to see the electrical. They want to see the plumbing. They want to see the insulation. And then they want to see the finish. Basically the same inspections you'd get if I were building you a house. Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 127 with Jay Leopold. It's been a while since we've talked about steel framing, so I thought it would be timely to invite Jay Leopold on the show. Jay is the chief engineer and designer at Thin House, which exclusively builds steel-framed tiny homes. In this conversation, we'll battle it out over steel framing versus SIPs, talk about the building envelope requirements for a steel-framed home, and take a deep dive on tiny house certifications. Stick around. But first, I want to tell you about our sponsor today. The Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast is brought to you by Tiny House Decisions. Tiny House Decisions is my signature resource that helps you go from dream to plan to even building your tiny house. I'll tell you more about it after the show, but all you should know right now is that I'm offering 20% off for podcast listeners. Just head over to thetinyhouse.net slash THD and use the coupon code TINY. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash THD, coupon code TINY. Right. I'm here with Jay Leopold. Jay is the chief engineer and designer at Thin House, makers of the all steel Thin House, custom Thin House, and new Thin House models of tiny houses on wheels. As licensed contractors, they bring a formal sense of practice and construction to the tiny house world. Not only will a Thin House make it down the road in one piece, but it will work and survive for many years once you set it down and likely receive all the permits you'll need from local officials. Jay builds houses, they just happen to be thin and on wheels. Jay Leopold, welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast. Thank you, Ethan. So on your website, um, kind of far down the page, there was this great quote, and I kind of want to start there. The quote is, when you design with steel, you start at the end and work backwards. Um, can, you, can you elaborate a little bit on, on what you mean by that? All right, so here, here's, what, here's what happened. Houses are built with wood. We've been building houses with wood forever and ever, and so is everybody else. Um, and then you, and, and you start doing the tiny house uh, thing, and you start looking around, and you bump into Volstruck. And when you bump into these guys, you say, wait a minute, this is something special. These guys are doing something quite great. And then you start saying, well, why can't we build it with steel? And the answer is because, you, because it's hard to do. That's why. The answer is it's simple. It's hard to do. It has to be screwed together. you got to know what you're doing. It takes a little while to figure it out. Then you say, okay, now I'm, gonna, I'm going to take a look at this thing out of steel. I mean, clearly the trailer is steel, although I just got a, a, a thing from New Zealand. Their trailers are, are all aluminum, which is very interesting. Steel, I think, is stronger. It's a better product. So the trailers are steel. And you start to build this thing out of steel, and then you go to a company called Clark Dietrich, who are the steel stud guys 
for commercial building. When you drive down the road and you see them putting up a commercial building and it's all steel, that's Clark Dietrich. And they are smart guys. They've done this before. And you start to realize that Home Depot studs is not the answer to the tiny house thing. You can't, you can't do it. I mean, you could, I suppose, but it won't work. Um, it's the steel is too thin. That is interior stud, wall stud, not exterior stud, stand up to 150 mile an hour stud. Once you start doing that, you start dealing with Clark Dietrich, then you get into where we are at, at Thin House, which is this steel thing that we are making. And it turns out that it's stronger, it's lighter. Lighter, by the way, critical, critical. I need to save as much weight as I can so that I can put other stuff into the tiny house and still get it down the road. Um, and we've also made a decision that, that a thin house is towable by a Ram 2500, an, an F-250. Okay. Yeah. Yes, you can go to 3500, you can go to a bigger truck, but we don't. It's, it is a medium truck. So what, what kind of weight savings are you seeing versus a comparable stick-framed house of a similar size? 30%, 40%. It's, it's a real number. Oh, yeah. Um, on a, on a stick-frame house, on a wood-frame house, on a wood-frame house, you and I would never consider anything other than 16-inch centers. That's where you go. On a steel-framed house with 16-gauge Clark Dietrich studs, we're at 24 inches. And the thing is incredibly stiff, crazy stiff. By the way, it's 24 inches except for certain places like lofts and things where you end up having shorter distances. But the thing is insanely strong. We tested out with three or four 300 pound guys jumping up and down on the thing, and it doesn't move. That makes a difference. So you're, you're saving 30%, but 30% of 12,000 pounds is 3,000 pounds of, of uh, refrigerators. Right. And, and that's enough to get you from, you know, one trailer class down to another, from, you know, from a 14,000 pound trailer down to a 12. If you want to go that way, right. right. Or, or, um, we build them on twin 7,000 pound axes. So we go to 14,000 pounds. That is as much as you can realistically go on a 24 foot trailer, which is what we're doing. Could you go to three? I suppose you could. We don't, but you could. It becomes unwieldy when you start to get big, 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 big. But now you can build a 24-foot trailer, 10 feet wide. Everything's 10 feet wide in our world. And the reason for, by the way, the reason for the 10-foot wide thing is you now put the stairs next to the bathroom, not in front of the bathroom, and it doesn't encroach on the main salon. So 10 feet wide. And our other feeling is, and we've talked about this, you and I have talked about this also, this concept that 10 feet wide is something you have to you have you can't just take it down the road you gotta pretend you gotta do some things right you gotta permit it properly you gotta do some but you're only hauling the thing two maybe three or four times in its whole life and you're living in it every day 
So our feeling is it's worth the extra hassle to go to 10 feet on the hall so that you have 10 feet on the lid. Right. And that, that extra two feet or t- really unlocks just different layout options and it makes the space feel less, less kind of tunnel-like and more, more room-like. Well, when we bring the thing to shows, everybody walks in and goes, oh my goodness, it's so big in here. It, it, I mean, I'll give you an example. So now you have the den area, which is the area over uh, past the kitchen in, in, the, in the end by the, by the front door, as it were. It has a seven-foot ceiling for the second loft, loft number two. The seven-foot ceiling, so now you have a 10-foot wide, a basically a 10-foot by 10-foot by 7-foot room that is almost the same as a normal room. You can set up a big screen TV to project on the wall, if you like. You're 10 feet away from the screen, which is regular house-like. You could, set, you could play video games there and, and have a regular screen. Um, by the way, I also, when I said a seven-foot ceiling, the way that works is we use a drop axle. Okay. That's, a, that's real. It's a very real thing. It gives you an extra four inches, which gives you a 48-inch master suite as opposed to something else. And now you've got headroom, wide room, and you have space. So we basically maxed out the volume of this 24 feet by 10 foot space. Right, right. So before I want I have some questions about, about the, the models and the layouts, but sure. back on the, the kind of the envelope and the structure. Um, what, what are you using for sheathing and how are you addressing the, the thermal bridging that you get, the extra thermal bridging that you get from the steel? Okay. So you can waste space. That's an easy thing to do. And one of the ways you waste space is by making you, your walls fat. If I take three inches off the wall, that's three inches I don't get. If I do it twice, now I've got a half a foot I just lost. So now you've got a two-by-four a two steel stud. The stud is actually three and a half inches. We have created what you might refer to as a poplar sandwich. On either, so, so the sheathing on the outside, you have to sheet it. If you don't sheet it, you're, you're going to bleed heat or cool in in my world. So you have to sheet it on both sides. You also have to have some sort of something to hang your pictures on, on the interior. Or for us to hang our steel exteriors on. Or to weatherproof, waterproof, moisture-proof. So what we create is a basically an quarter and an eighth inch poplar sheeted steel sandwich with insulation in the interior so now it basically basically imagine it as an insulated aircraft wing and that's what the exteriors are okay so it's like a a sheathing that is a sandwich of poplar at some insulation and then poplar yes poplar poplar steel got it yes there is no question that the steel is going to give you bridging. Mm-hmm. 
That is a fact of life. Consideration. We, we're gonna give. We're gonna give it up. Now, the way we solve that problem on the other side is we oversize the mini split heat pump to twelve thousand BTU for the space, mm -hmm. and now, yes, I'm bleeding energy a little, but I'm making it back up. A I'm making it up completely, and then some. When you have a proper size mini split, we don't use wood uh, oven, wood uh, furnaces or any of that sort of stuff. Everything is electric. It, there is no outgassing. We have no uh, uh, spray foam. Um, that that whole thing is is just dangerous in our way of looking at it. So you have electric heating and cooling, electric water, no no propane, no gas, and if you lose a little heat, you just make it up. Mm -hmm. And then what are you what are you actually doing for insulation in the walls? The walls are basically a combination of foam board, which is closed cell insulation. Mm -hmm. um, we like rock wool a lot. Rock wool is a fabulous material. Yeah, it's a good product. Crazy natural. Easy to put wherever you want to put it. You can have as much of it as you want. It fills in the gaps. And oh, by the way, it will make you soundproof if that's useful to you. Mm -hmm. We use it all the time in our in our music studio uh, builds. And of course, your, your classic pink foam, your pink your pink uh, insulation. So you put all that together, and you can get uh, easily R13 in the walls without any problem. You can get R19. We also insulate the floor because. If somebody wants to put a thin house on Pike's Peak, that could be a mighty cold winter day. Oh, yeah. I mean, the floors get quite chilly in the winter when, when that cold air can be underneath them. You've, just, you've described it in Vermont a million times. Oh, wait a minute. So, so what happens is, so the trailer comes to us. The trailer, we've designed the trailer, and we've got guys who build. Mm -hmm. The trailer comes to us with a three-inch pocket. Below the, you have the, the galvanized plate on the bottom, and then you have a three-inch pocket. That pocket, our little secret, is that we sprinkle in diatomaceous earth. Everybody who does a DIY should do this. Costs nothing. But critters hate it. That is a great idea. And it lasts, and it lasts forever. It's non-toxic. You just you know, go to the Home Depot and get a $30 bag of the stuff or your local fish supply store, and sprinkle the base of it with diatomaceous earth. Then you put in your foam core and your rock wool, seal the whole thing up. Then you put your flooring on it, screw it all down, and it's super solid and super insulated, and it's not going anywhere. Yes, you can, yes, my diatomaceous earth, that's a little, a little ocean science, the creature's it came from scorpions. We, and obviously, you and I know, we, in, in Scottsdale, we have scorpions, which are a strange creature. And you don't really want to run into them if you can avoid it. No. <laughs> um, and if you ever have run into it, you will remember it. Um, anyway, they don't like diatomaceous earth. It gets in their shells. It screws them up, and off they go. 
And so it's effective. I didn't, I, I knew that it was effective for like insects because it, it dries out their, their exoskeletons, but also for things like, like mice and, and other little vermins, they don't like it either. Mice don't particularly care, but mice are going to have a hard time getting through steel. welded yeah. steel. I mean, the whole, the, the spaces are small. Yeah. And, you know, first of all, the, the plate is welded to the bottom. We, we, uh, we caulk the, the, the hell out of it. And yeah, you're not going to get creatures in there much. Yeah. I don't think so. I mean, it can happen, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, I've, I had some, some, uh, fall in the fall here, the mice tend to try to get into the warmth and it's been a few years since I've had one. Basically, you know, there was a, you know, a, a, an errant hole that was drilled for for a plumbing line that that didn't end up working out because it you know we drilled it and it was right over one of the trailer cross bracing members so then okay drill another hole and you know that so right and you didn't fill any old one right so then once I went around and stuffed some steel wool into every little nook and cranny I haven't had any mice since right, then right so. Well, so and and I and I totally agree. So so what happens is you now got this trailer, this flat trailer, and the the floorboards. First of all, you have your insulation system. Then your floorboards get. In our case, everything is what we call glued and screwed. We glue everything is glued with a um, a uh, industrial sealant and on on the steel cross beams and then screwed down and the reason for this is something that i learned years ago in the construction business which is something called a nightingale floor and if you haven't ever run into that term google it it's a wonderful term nightingale floor is the floor that is the shogun puts in the palace uh in in the 1200s and the reason for this is when the ninjas come to try and kill you they walk on the floor and the floor squeaks and it wakes everybody up and then the, then the the yashogun knows that he's not he can wake up and, and uh, fend off the attack you and i do not want nightingale floors it is the most irritating thing on the planet especially if you're not worried about ninjas so having said that you want your floors glued and screwed especially on a mobile platform i mean if if your floor is if you can hear your floor when you walk on it, that's a problem. And we had that problem off in the beginning. And by the way, after we do that, creatures aren't getting in. Nobody's getting in. Yeah. At least not from that point. So one of my, my Tiny House Engage members, and this is an online community that I run, um, has a the question is, do you have any post-construction solutions to the steel frame blocking or interfering with radio and internet and Wi-Fi? Right. So one would think that you have created a uh, a uh, electric cage, an, e- an an EMP cage for yourself. It turns out that twenty four inch centers on your steel studs does not create a Faraday cage. You would think it could, it could, but it yeah. doesn't. But it doesn't. I think I think they're actually in a a different situation where their house is made of metal sips. So that's a different thing. Yeah, definitely different. And they then they create a Faraday cage. 
and you're done. Now, SIPs are an interesting, it's interesting discussion. The problem with SIPs, there's only one problem. There are two problems with SIPs. One is- Yeah, because you. I was going to, this is on my list of questions because you talked about this in your, um, in your online tiny house event talk, the two, the two problems with SIPs envelopes. All right, two problems. First problem is they're insanely heavy. They're fabulous. It's a fabulous solution, but it's a solution for a non-mobile platform. If I were building a house, I'm, a, I'm happy, happy. But building on a mobile platform where weight is a problem, SIPs are a problem because they're heavy. If you take a look, if now if you're going to three axles on a 24-inch, a 24-foot trailer, it might fly, but it's very heavy. And taking it down the road is really a bear, and you better have a really big truck. The other thing with SIPs is it lends itself to production creation. If I'm making five houses that all look the same and I know exactly where the electric lines and the plumbing lines are going to be, then I can order my SIPs and get it and engineer it exactly right. And they come delivered and I put my lines in and everybody's happy. But if I'm doing a DIY or a one-off and I'm not exactly sure where those things go, now I'm cutting my SIPs up and I'm blowing the whole structural integrity of the thing and I've blown it. So the answer is I can't, I don't, I, I can't be sure on one piece exactly where they go. So between those two things, I, I'm just not a big fan. Yeah. And they've really, they have really gotten a foothold in the tiny house world for, for DIY builds. It seems, um, you know, I'm not seeing a lot of professionals building that way because you know, they, they've got a construction crew. They're going to knock together a stick frame or a steel frame. But, you know, going the SIPs route, I think that it seems like the more DIY builds are going that way. And I think thermally, they're fantastic because you don't get the thermal bridging. Fantastic. It's fantastic. But, but having said that, let's say, let's say the thermal is a problem for you, that you bought a thin house. And you put the thing literally on Pike's Peak. You really have. It's 14,000 feet up and it's cold, cold, cold. And there you go. Nobody says that once it's there, you couldn't re-insulate the exterior or the interior if you felt like it. Right. Because there are, there are products. I mean, I've heard them referred to as outsolation. But, but I know that Zip System makes one that's essentially a mini SIP panel that is a structural sheathing product. You could do it. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, I mean, our thin house is put together with a gajillion screws, which we've talked about before. And I do mean a gajillion of them. It's really kind of, it's like 50 pounds of screws in the thing. But there's nothing that says you can't take the screws out, take all the steel cladding on the exterior out, reclad the thing with 17 inches of, of, of uh, space shuttle foam, if you really felt like it, and then put it all back together again. Mm-hmm. And now the thing would be, but having said that, maybe what you do rather than that is simply turn the heat up a little bit on the cold day. Sure. Because it's only 3,500 cubic feet run by a 12,000. Now you could, I suppose, if you're really, if you're really insane about it, you could add, I wouldn't add a wood stove, but you could certainly add a second mini split if you really were cold. I don't know where you put it, but you could do it. I mean, that wouldn't be that big a deal. And anyway, I just think that 
insulation for most everybody is not that big a deal. And the SIPs idea, while it's fabulous to, and by the way, what does it save? It saves a, it saves a few days of putting up. I agree, you know, no question about that. But you, but it costs you maybe half of that time in engineering time. So now you're saving a bunch of $24 hours and you're spending a bunch of $75 hours to do it. I'm not sure that it all works out. Now, if you're doing it yourself as a DIY, that's a whole different thing. Those 75 hour, hour hours aren't, aren't real. Right. Right. And in, in general, when I've looked at it, the cost to hire a company to basically get you to the same point in your build, stick framed versus SIPs are about equal. But when you do it when you do it in SIPs, you're putting more money into the materials than into the labor. And into the engineering. So I mean sure. the answer is you've got to have I mean you the other thing is this all right, so we build out of steel and we have plans. And our plans are designed by engineers and approved by our friends at NOAA and approved by any building department that wants to take a look at the thing because it's built like ours. If I do it with SIPs, that's fine too, but that's a whole different set of approvals. And now you run that whole problem of, I mean, if I'm going to park it on my own land and nobody cares, that's a fine thing. But if you're going to put it in some place that requires a, a, a green tag, now a SIPs thing could become a problem if you didn't get it done. If you don't have an engineering step, somebody's got to engineer the thing. And that's not free. Right. Unfortunately. Actually, that, that's a good segue. Um, could you talk about the NOAA certification versus RVIEIA certification versus Pacific West? You touched on this in your talk, and I, sure. I wanted to have you do that on the show, too, because... I get so many questions about it, and it's, it's very um, nuanced. Okay. Let me start with RVIA. RVIA is an industry association that works with and looks over the recreational vehicle makers. A recreational vehicle is a thing that is, it is perhaps the grandfather of our tiny house world a house on wheels kind of a thing, but it is not made for 12 month a year living. The RVIA folks, basically, I'm not gonna give it to you exactly right, but I'll give it to you. Basically what they do is they say to us, the manufacturers, they say to Thin House, look, you give us $10,000. We will come over to your facility and we will see what you're up to. We will tell you what we love. We will ask you to fix a few things. Quality control is mostly what they're looking for. Consistency and quality control and engineering. And once you do that, we will then allow you to put RVIA and everything that you build for the next three months. And then three months later, it will happen again. And you'll pay us $4,000 for sending an engineer over. And every three months, you'll send us two or $3,000. And we will recertify you and that then allows you to build these things. Okay. And it is then RVIA approved, and it is a mobile, it is an RV. Uh, NOAA basically does a thing called remote 
inspection. And what that what they do is they break it down into five chunks on your house. The first one is the trailer. They want to see the trailer. They want to make sure that the trailer is their checklist of stuff, which they'll tell you all about. Then they say, okay. Then you go and you frame it. And now the framing is almost identical in inspection to what we see from the city inspectors on a house. They want to see how it's framed. They want to see how it's attached at the bottom. They want to see that it's going to stay put. Then they will say okay to that, or they will tell you. Now, for example, one of the problems you can have with framing is that the windows are not, for lack of a better term, jump outable. <laughs> I don't know how to do it. It's a house. So the lofts have to have windows that are openable mm-hmm. and jump outable if the thing is on fire. So that's the kind of thing they're going to be looking for. Make sure that it's framed from. Now, is Noah inspecting to the Appendix Q standards? Are they inspecting? Yes. Okay. Yes, 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 yes. And they'll start and they'll say, okay, stand over on the stairs and see if you give me my 48 inches. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so the Noah thing is as close to a classic building inspection as you can get in our world right now. And it's pretty close. And, and, and So then, then they want to see the electrical. They want to see the plumbing. They want to see the insulation. Mm-hmm. And then they want to see the finish. So you've got basically the same inspections you'd get if I were building you a house. And then they will say, okay. Um, for that, they charge on a DIY situation approximately $2,000, I think mm-hmm. it is. I would say as a professional, it is the best $2,000 you ever spent. Why is that? Two reasons. One is they'll help you. If you are not building quite right, they will help you. They will make sure that your um, plumbing lines are pressured properly. They'll make sure that your electrical lines are not going to short out and burn your house down. They will, they will do the, the things that inspectors do. And they will be very nice about it. They're delightful folks. And they will make sure that your house is safe. That's an important thing to have. Then, if you're going to sell it to somebody or you're going to insure it, somebody's going to want to make sure that somebody saw the thing. Somebody, not you. Right. And that's them. So that's why that's a great thing. Now, Pacific West does essentially... Same thing as RVIA, only they do it for tiny houses instead of RVs. Um, Very, very good guys. Important, but not cheap. And you are not going to be able to do our uh, Pacific West on a DIY project. Okay. And and so Pacific West is going to the, like the ASTM standard for, for RVs. Or whatever that standard is. Yeah, well, they're starting to they're starting to merge. They're starting to get the RV and, and the and the uh, IRC uh, thing. This this business about Appendix Q is terribly important, as it turns out. Right. Because now it gets us in the room, at least talking about it. Right. And it's so it's so interesting how some you know, like Los Angeles recently legalized tiny houses as ADUs, but the catch is that they have to be RVIA certified. 
And same thing like with the Lake Dallas Village um, outside of um, Houston, you know, the way they were able to kind of get it allowed is that the tiny houses have to be certified. But I find it so kind of ironic that the tiny houses essentially have to be certified as RVs. They don't know what to do. So they don't know what to do. They want to do something. And this is at least something. Sure. I'll give you an example. One of the, one of my, one of my side gigs, I happen to be on the uh, zoning board for the city of Scottsdale. If you want to put a a thousand foot tower in your front yard, Scottsdale, you got to convince me it's, it's okay. Mm -hmm. And you aren't going to be able to do that, but that's a different thing. And in the discussion with our building department, I said to them, we're now talking about tiny houses. Can I have this in Scottsdale? And he said, yeah, no. (laughs) He said, no. But after about three seconds of conversation, it turns out his problem with it isn't the tiny house. If you have a tiny house that has that is built to the IRC and Appendix Q and is green tagged like a house, that's all he wants. He said you can't have wheels. Makes it an RV. And you can't live in an RV all the time. So what you got to do is you got to jack the thing up, put it on blocks, and take the wheels off. And then I'll green tag. Done. So that so if you want to have a tiny house in Scottsdale, I'm not so sure that your your aunt would like to have one in, in Desert Highlands in her front yard. I don't think Desert Highlands would allow a tiny house. I'm not, well, actually, some of those lots are very large. Yeah, and she doesn't live there anymore either. <laughs> we had a, uh, a conversation with a guy in Paradise Valley, which is uh, Phoenix's version of uh, the high rent district. And basically, the guy has a, you know, a $7 million house on five acres uh, looking in the shadow of Camelback Mountain. But his son, who went to ASU and graduated, is now living in the house because he can't get a job. And he's just, what do I do with it? I said, let's put a tiny house out in your backyard. Nobody will even know it's there. And he can live there. Yeah. And the guy says, I'm all in. So there you go. Um, but the fact is that if you ask whoever you are, who's ever seen this, if you ask the local folks, tell me what you want. I'm not in it for a fight. That's one of the things that, that we are very good at at Thin House is we do not fight. We don't fight with anybody, but we don't fight with the city folks. There, there's just no percentage. Basically, you say to them, tell me what you want, and we'll give it to you. Anything. Whatever you want. You want you want a 45-inch diameter sewage pipe? We'll give you that. If you give them what they want, you can have what you want. So that's the key to the thing. And if it turns out that, that they want an IRC green tag like a normal house, then you have it inspected by the NOAA folks, and you do that. If they want an RV certification, that's fine, but it then becomes an RV and you can't live in it and you have to play that game with it. So it is what it is. And you just, you just give them what they want. So is the NOAA certification, like, are they certified by somebody? Or is it kind of like you have to believe in the NOAA certification to make it, that's what makes it valuable, that, that enough right, people right. agree that NOAA is certifying to a standard? Yeah, yes, the answer, yes. Here's what, NOAA, here's what the NOAA guys are doing. They are doing two things 
that probably will help us. One is all of the inspections are digitally safe. So that if the building inspector in Los Alamos wants to see the electrical on serial number 4537 on Thin House, that's in the, they can go to Noah, Noah will show it to them, uh-huh. and, you, and he can see what's behind those walls without taking the walls down. So that's very useful. And the other thing is that they are inspecting to the IRCQ standard. So when you put those together, so if you explain to Mr. Los Alamos building department, look, that's what this is. This has had all the inspections. That's what this is. And you can see it if you like, or you can trust them, or you can have a combination of both. That's what happens. And that's why we think that that's the kind of thing that might actually be useful. You're not, the answer is you don't have to trust. You can if you want to trust them, but you don't have to. You can see it. How many, how many thin houses are out there in the world now? Five. Okay. How far have they, how far have they wandered from, from their homes? Not very far. The answer <laughs> they don't go there. Um, all right. So we, we went, we took a thin house from Phoenix to San Diego um, for the show. It weighed, the truck and the thin house together weighed just short of 19,000 pounds. We hauled it with a, uh, a, a Ram 2500 diesel. By the way, diesel. Do not take, don't do this at home. Do not take your, your tiny house anywhere with a gasoline engine truck if you want your transmission to survive the summer. Yeah. (laughs) Because that just won't work. But um, as you know, there are 4,000-foot mountains between Phoenix and San Diego. And we hauled up that mountain without any care or concern. Just just, just right up the mountain. So basically, if you you build a a tiny house on twin 7,000 axles, Keep it to 14,000 pounds, haul it with a 2500 250 series truck diesel. You can go anywhere in the, in the world or in the country. Also, turns out, by the way, that a thin house can be moved easily enough to New Zealand. We had, we had that happen where the guy said, How do we do that? Well, the answer is we drive it from Phoenix to Long Beach. The crane picks the thing up, sticks it on a boat, drives it over to Christchurch, where another crane picks it up, puts it on the thing. Guy takes his Ram 2500, drives it, and off he goes. That whole thing is less than $3,000. I was like, really? It's like, really? That's incredible. That's like, that's how much it costs to have a tiny house professionally moved across the United States. That's true. As it turns out yeah. that, yes, we have now found that, that the price to move us is approximately $5 a mile. That's what it pretty much costs. A lot of that is insurance. A fairly sizable chunk of that is gasoline because you only get 12 miles to the gallon. Um, and permitting is very real. If you don't, if you can't get 
into the next state without stopping and talking to the constable. Right. So maybe you send the, maybe to ship a thin house from Arizona to New York, you actually drive it to Long Beach and it goes on a shipping boat through the Panama Canal and around. Oh, that's a funny thought. It yeah. might be cheaper. Yeah, or, or, or hire a, a C-130 and do it that way. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So from, well, that's, a, that's an interesting point. I would imagine that once you're on the road, if, if, if someone in New Hampshire, if you wanted one, so you are approximately 2,400 miles away from <laughs> Once you got the permit, the, the permits cost approximately, just for talking purposes, $75 per state. From here to there, we're talking about probably 15 or 18 states. Um, so let's say 15 times 75 is 75, is $1,000 in permits or thereabouts. Right. 2,200 miles at five bucks a piece is $10,000. That's a killer. So you'd have to say, okay, let's get that down to two bucks a mile. And you're still talking about six or $7,000 to make it happen. Yeah. They do it for cheaper somehow. I got, when I was working on the second edition of, of Tiny House Decisions, I put a whole section on moving and towing and I got a quote to move. I just figured what would it cost to move my house from Burlington, Vermont to Portland, Oregon? And I think the quote was around $2,600. Well, first of all, your house is only eight and a half wide. Correct. Correct. That, all right. So now you just chopped $1,000 off, off the of permits. Off the game. I don't have to stop at the way stations anywhere along the way with an eight and a half foot trailer. So I can get on the road. First of all, what you're describing is something in the neighborhood of a dollar and a half a mile. Okay. That's a fabulous price because the gas alone, if you're talking about, I'm just saying, let's say 15 miles per gallon, you know, I don't even know what it weighs, but let's say, you know, it weighs what it weighs. Let's say it's 15 miles per gallon and a gallon of gas is $3. That's 20 cents just in gas. And we haven't talked about wear and tear on the car. Anyway, so. Right. Yeah. The answer is it is what it is. It is what it is. But having said that, you're only doing it once. Yes, I agree. I mean, I think that the utility of a tiny house on wheels is for those occasional moves. Um, I'm, I'm always, I mean, I, I have no judgment and I think it's really cool seeing people who are traveling with tiny houses on wheels, The forty thousand guys, but it's, it just moving. I, I had to just move my house for the first time in six years, like eight miles. And like, it's kind of harrowing, in my opinion, to move a 10,000 pound like house anywhere. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. And oh, by the way, you still have 13 foot, six inch tops and you have you have all sorts. I mean, this is this is not an easy move. You, I mean, and you can't just pick up and go. I suppose you could. Um, the, the concept that you could live along the uh, the Red River, and then if the river starts rising, you could get the hell out of the way in a big hurry. That's a pretty cool idea. Although my son Ari, who's in the business with me, has, has said we should build a pontoon kit. <laughs> and then he wants to put a motor on the front 
and and put a, a wheelhouse up in the second loft and and ride down the Mississippi River uh, in flood stage. You're going, yeah, I don't think that's yeah. <laughs> that may not be where you want to go with this. <laughs> um, yes, you can move. Yes, you could conceivably, I suppose, take it from your house in Missoula to your winter uh, how your winter space in Key West. You could do that. And maybe you would a couple of times. But it's a long, long way. And by the way, I don't care who you are. It's still 55 miles an hour. I mean, it's, it's a, I mean, from your house in, on the East Coast to Portland, it's a seven or eight day trip. Yeah. And okay. I mean, that's fine. That's when you need to build a van or a school bus, if that's what. It, or sell yeah. it. Yeah. And buy another one. <laughs> buy the next one. Yeah. I mean, you built yours. So there's a certain amount of love and attention to sure. the but, but it's, I mean, but if it was a stick built house and you, and you got a job offer for $20 million a year in Portland, Guess what? Well, if it was if it was twenty million dollars a year, I could then money would be no object, and I could have the house airlifted. But right, or you could simply sell it and build the next yeah, one. Yeah, that's you true. Have Fifty-three different ideas on what the next one's. Of look course, like. of course. Once you build one, then you're like, ah, this is all wrong. Let's let's do the next one. And, and by the way, we're not in the business. And this is a this is an interesting question. We are not in the business much of. Do it yourself. Our feeling is this is a house and you don't want to build your own house. Can you build it? Yes. Could did Abe Lincoln build his own house? I think so, but you don't. Did you do it? Yes. Is it an incredibly hard thing to do? Yes. Is it a little dangerous? Yes. Are you thinking sometimes when the wind is blowing and the thing's creaking a little bit? You know, what have I done to myself? <laughs> I get all that. These are houses built by guys who build houses. Right. Right. And you have a background. And that's, why, that's why I think the industry is going. The industry, is, the industry can't survive on the random do-it-yourself guys. That's just not what we're going to be doing. Well, not everyone can or should build their own. I think that there will always be that spirit of DIY and customization. And I'm sure there will be people building their own tiny houses forever. But, you know... For it to become more accepted and have more people in tiny houses, there needs to be more professional builders building quality products. Right. Now, if you buy a thin house, nobody says you can't build a deck and a and a sauna out back Mm -hmm. and a shade sail and 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 connect two of them together. You know, sure. The things that people do to their houses, you would do to this. This is a house. We do this. So one thing that I like to ask all my guests is what are two or three books or other resources that you recommend? Um, And you really have a background in in the building science and physics and those kinds of things. So I was wondering if you have any recommended reading or resources that that you tell people to get into when they want to start understanding this stuff. Are you talking about a guy who is building it or building part of it him, him or herself or are you talking about someone who's buying it from a pro um i mean maybe one for each okay if you're going to do it yourself 
you're in trouble. (laughs) 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 All right. So the answer is, if you're going to do it yourself, you really want to read the International Residential Code. It's that thick, and it is a beast. But you want to at least, if you're not going to read it, then read your book or someone else's book who picks out the salient points of the thing and says, look, these are the things you ought to be aware of. But having said that, you need to have a copy of it. Because while you may not read the thing, you may need to refer to it from time to time, from moment to moment. I want to know what the insulation, how I do all that stuff. That's one. I also am a big fan. The electrical code is critical. If you don't get your electricity done right, you're going to burn your house down. And you might be in it when it happens. Now, if you're in one of ours, you can jump out the window because the folks that know it made sure their windows are big enough. But still, it could be 12 feet down. And, it's, you know, and that ground may not be all that soft because it could be stone like here in Scottsdale, and it's going to be painful. So don't do that. But you, your, your code books... Now, DeWalt makes a bunch of code books, and all the, all the companies make these, these little, you know, it, you know, electricity made easy, that kind of thing. Yep. Um, I would never, ever suggest that you do the electrical on your own, but people do it all the time. I would never, ever suggest you do the plumbing on your own, and people do it on their own, and there's water everywhere. The problem with plumbing is if you do it wrong, the water's behind the wall. I never tell people who are DIYing their plumbing to put it inside the wall. Put it on the... Put it, Where do you put it? Well, it's in the kitchen cabinet on the inside of the walls so that it's... It's just surface mounted back there. How about your shower? How do you do that? Well, that's that's the one place where it's inside of a wall, it's a but it's an interior place. wall. I, I I get that. The other thing is the the, the toilet. Uh, just just to say, uh, you know, I'll make this comment. We we use flush toilets. We are. I understand composting toilets. I understand off grid living and all that stuff. But if you're going to be an off grid liver, by the way, I'm a big fan of a small septic field and still using flush toilet. I'm just not a fan. I, I'm not convinced that that's the way. I don't think I can get my wife of 40 years to accept a composting toilet. It's just not going to fly. I have a feeling that divorce papers would hit me long before I get that to go. So I actually did two compost toilets at my wedding. I'm still married, and my grandmother used it. 90, 92 years old. I'm impressed. <laughs> I'm impressed, and that's great. I and 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 if if somebody wants it, by the way, no, there's no you know the toilet in a thin house weighs sixty five pounds and it's held together by two bolts on the floor. You want to pull that off and put something else in its place. Piece of cake to do. You're more than welcome to do it. Also, by the way, another, another little point before I let you go is I came to Scottsdale 15 years ago from Chicago because I'm an electrical engineer and we set up a solar company. And we stopped doing solar and moved into contracting because the Arizona Corporate Commission who governs solar basically put a $100 a month tax on anybody who wanted to put solar up here and it killed it. It was, and that's exactly the reaction. Like, how is that even possible? There's solar panels up on the house. In the sunniest place in the, in the country. 
Oh, by the way, I will tell you, it works beautifully. Yeah. It works beautifully. My house has solar before they killed it, and it generates $300 a month in electricity, and it's, it's killed. But putting solar on a tiny house, I'm a big fan. If you want to go off-grid electrical, fabulous idea. However, don't for a minute think that you can put it on your roof because, and this is a funny thing, there's only so much energy coming from the sun. If there were enough energy coming from the sun to power your house on your roof, it would kill you if you walked outside. Maybe on Mercury you could do it, but you can't do it on Earth. So you need more square footage. Okay. You don't have a roof, and the way to do it is a ground mount. Basically, one solar panel, which is 10 square feet, will give you about, it takes about 15 or 20 of them to power a house if you're going to run it like an, like an American house. Again, your mini split uses a lot of power. Sure. Your, your, um, your oven uses a lot of power. Your refrigerator, but it's got a full-size refrigerator. So that, you know, they, these things are using power. Um, charging iPhones up, that big. But the answer is you need a ground mount to do it. And that's cool. Works beautifully. Batteries, that's a problem. One is they're expensive. Two is they're heavy. Three is how many days do you need? You know, if, if I said to you here in Scottsdale, I think we can go three days without the sun, and then it would be sunny again. So I need at maximum two, two and a half days of batteries. But I got an air conditioner running 24-7, so I need 73 batteries at 55 pounds apiece. You live in a place where in the winter, if you don't have, first of all, in the winter, you don't have sun, and you get cold. Yeah, here for here it makes a lot of sense to look at propane or wood as a supplemental heat source in the winter. Something, something. Yeah. you got to something. You got not to mention you, a lot of the mini splits get less efficient as the temperature goes down. Real low. Yeah. Right, right. You would you would need to cover. I mean, I, yeah. I don't. So if you moved eight miles away, you don't live by that pretty lake anymore. No, unfortunately. Yeah, that was a pretty lake. Yeah, it was a good spot. But you'd have to cover the whole lake in solar panels. <laughs> Floating solar panel field, which would be very cool. Yeah. But it would be, um, yes, you have to have, depending on where you are, energy or right. dust. You, I mean, every house. Um, uh, is your new location on grid? Uh, the new location, it's kind of an interim spot. It's actually just back behind the barn at my parents' house where I built it. Um, okay. and we're going to look at potentially buying our own property so that we don't have to, so we don't have to go through having to move again and we can invest in some of the infrastructure things like putting in a ground mount solar. Like I'm not going to put in ground mount solar on a property that I'm renting, you know? And you, by the way, I'm not a big, I mean, again, I'm a solar guy, but I'm not a big fan of solar panels, uh, on off grid unless you have to. Right. If you can hook up to the grid. Yeah, yeah no, so I can far. I can plug in. And I was on grid where I was parked, but that's a story for another time. Uh, Jay Leopold, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. This has been really fun. Well, you're very welcome. Happy to do it. Thank you so much to Jay Leopold for being a guest on the show. 
You can find the show notes from today's episode, including links to Thin House and photos of their designs at thetinyhouse.net slash 127. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 127. Now I want to tell you a little bit more about our sponsor today, which is the guide Tiny House Decisions. Tiny House Decisions is a comprehensive field guide to help aspiring tiny house builders make the right choices for their unique homes. In it, you go through the decisions that I made, what I ultimately decided for my own house and why, and how those decisions affected the overall project. I'll help you identify key choices and understand the relationships between them so you can plan your house effectively without spending countless hours researching. The guide has helped readers save hundreds or even thousands of dollars on their tiny houses by avoiding common mistakes. And most important, it will help you feel confident about the choices you're making because you'll know they're the right decisions for you. To learn more, head over to thetinyhouse.net slash THD. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash THD and use the coupon code TINY when you check out for 20% off any package. Well, that's all for now. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.